Other than that, uh, we're going to be continuing our series in 1 Peter, uh, Dispersed and Temporary. And we're going to be in 1 Peter. The title of tonight's message is The Word is Everything. Psych, the word in everything is, that, is the title. The word in everything. And we're going to have three points as usual. And so our first point for the night uh, was inspired by the Fast and the Furious. Uh, I don't have friends. I got family. That's our first point of the night. Our second point of the night is uh, the word is not an avocado. So if you didn't know that, the word is not an avocado. And we're going to talk about why. Um, and then our third point is the word is louder. All right, so as I've said in previous weeks, uh, we're in First Peter, and our verses for the night are going to be verses 22 through 25, but so that we can get the, the context of this letter, of, of the verses that we're, that we're reading, we're going to read the whole thing. So we're going to start from First Peter 1, verse 1, and then we're going to read all the way through verse 25, which is the entirety of the first chapter. So let's get into it. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. If you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Verse 22. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. All right. it's a lot of verses. So for our first point, I don't have friends. I got family. Uh, we're going to be looking at verse 22. In verse 22, Peter is talking about having love for each other within the body of Christ. Uh, among your brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, love each other. Love each other. And he points out that the reason we're able to do this is that we have purified our souls. 
And how have we purified our souls? Well, we have purified our souls through our obedience to the truth. And this is how the verse is translated in the New Living Translation. I like the way it's translated in this one. It says, you were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. So now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart. Well, what is the truth that we are obeying? Or what is the truth that we should be obeying? What's the truth that we should obey? It's an important question because in obeying the truth, our souls are purified and cleansed from our sins. So what is this truth that we are to obey? Well, it's an easy answer. It's the gospel. The truth of the gospel is what we obey, and it's the gospel that purifies our souls and cleanses us of our sin. One of those, uh, the truth, the truth that we obey is the gospel and all of the implications that follow as a result of believing in it. And one of those implications being that we will be born again spiritually. We're going to be spiritually born again when we believe the gospel. And it's, 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 we'll be made alive spiritually. Made alive. It's another way of saying it. We'll be made alive. And it's because of this obedience to the truth of the gospel, which has resulted in us being born again. Because we're obedient to the truth of the gospel, because we believe in this gospel, we're born again. Our souls are purified. We've been cleansed of our sins. And now, because of that, we are able to love our brothers and sisters in the right way. Now, because of that, we're able to love our brothers and sisters in a godly way. And in what way is that? Well, let's read verse 22 again. It says, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. So this love, it's, it's interesting. The words that Peter uses in this verse for love Um, the first time he uses the word love where it says, uh, where he says uh, it's a show a sincere love as brothers and sisters or or says uh, love the brethren, it's the Greek word Philadelphia, Philadelphia, which means uh, it's a love between brothers and sisters. It's, It's a brotherly love. But the second time Peter uses the word love in this verse when he says to fervently love one another or to love each other deeply, It's the Greek word agapao, agapao, which means to welcome, to be fond of, to love, to love dearly. It's an active love that God has for Jesus and for his people and even for his enemies. Agapao, that's that love. The first word, Philadelphia, is a noun. You have Philadelphia. The second word is a verb, agapao. You do agapao. You show Agapao. So turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. You have Philadelphia, you show and do agapao. But how do we know if we're loving in this way? How do we know that we are showing agapao, love? Well, I found by listening to other preachers, other teachers, that the best way to figure out if you are loving if you are showing and doing love the agapao way, is to insert yourself into 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So first, let's read 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 7. He says, If I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So here we have... The Bible essentially providing tangible definitions and examples of what love is and what love does, especially in verses 4 through 7. So now, here's a little exercise. Insert yourself into those verses and see if what you're saying is true. So instead of saying the word love, insert your name. So it'll sound like this. 
Abel is patient. Abel is kind. Abel is not jealous. Abel does not brag. Abel is not arrogant. Abel does not act unbecomingly. Abel does not seek his own. Abel is not provoked. Abel does not take into account a wrong suffered. Abel does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Abel rejoices in the truth. Abel bears all things. Abel believes all things. Abel hopes all things. Abel endures all things. Insert your name into these verses. Are you being truthful or are you lying when you say these things with your name inserted? Can you repeat these verses with your name inserted to somebody who knows you well and would they believe you? Or would they be like, "Uh, actually, that's not true. This is how we are to be in general. This kind of love, this is how we're to be in general. But especially, this is how we are to be with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And Peter says to have brotherly love for each other and to 1 Corinthians 13, love each other from the heart. That's what he says. Now, that doesn't mean when you're here for an hour and a half, you know, it's, it's, some, it's some show where you're like, oh, yeah, I really love you guys, but really, you just, you really couldn't care less. That's not what he's talking about. That's not the kind of love that Peter's talking about. It's actual, actually having love for each other, for your brothers and sisters in Christ, because there's just a different connection. It's through Jesus. Now, it may seem impossible at some, at some times, but that's the point of Peter's sequence of words in 1 Peter 1.22. He says, he says, Since you have been purified, since you have been cleansed because of your obedience to the truth, now you can love each other properly. And that means loving each other even when the other person doesn't deserve it. Anybody who's married knows that's what love means. So loving each other even when the other person doesn't deserve it. Anybody in the church ever get on your nerves? Chris looked up very quickly. (laughs) Anyone in the church ever hurt your feelings? Anyone in the church ever do something to you that if this was the BC days, you maybe would have had a few choice words for them? Maybe you would have laid hands on them, and I ain't talking about praying for healing. I'm sure you have. I'm sure you have. I'm sure that we all have. I'm sure that I've been the cause of people getting hurt or upset in the church, and I'm sure that you all have been a cause for someone getting hurt or upset in the church. But what does that have to do with your obedience to Christ? What does that have to do with your personal obedience to Christ. Let's turn to Romans chapter 12. I'm sure that others in the church have let you down. I'm sure that others in the church have hurt you. And I'm sure that maybe you were hurt for real, like it it really did hurt. But again, what does that have to do with your personal obedience to Jesus and to his word? Jesus was let down. Jesus was hurt by his people. Judas was part of the inner 12, yet he betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. Peter said, I'm ride or die, Lord. I'm with you till the end. But Peter actually ended up leaving Jesus hanging, denying him. All but one disciple deserted Jesus. All but one disciple deserted Jesus as he was hanging on the cross. The majority of the people they only wanted Jesus for the miracles that he, was, that, he was, that he was doing. They wanted him for the multiplication of food. They wanted him for the healing. They wanted him for these things. But as soon as it became uncool to roll with Jesus, they deserted him. I'm sure you've been hurt by others. I'm sure you've been hurt by others. But has anyone ever hurt you so much that you were left nailed to a cross? I would venture to say no. So we need to show love to each other regardless of what comes up. And if you do happen to have an issue with somebody in the church, if you happen to have an issue with something that somebody said or somebody did, talk about it. Talk about it. We're a family. Talk about it. Bring it up. We are brothers and sisters. Talk about it, but make sure God is there in the conversation. Take an objective third party if you're going to address something with somebody. 
The Bible says that where two or more are gathered, Christ is there in the midst. So make sure that there's somebody else there when you talk about these things. Because, I mean, come on, honestly, like, we're, we're going we're gonna to have problems with each other sometimes, right? Someone's going to say something that they shouldn't have said. Someone's going to do something that they shouldn't have done. And you're going to get hurt. You're going to be bitter. But talk about it because we're not supposed to be bitter with each other. We're supposed to forgive each other. So talk about it. And make sure someone's there with you. Because you need somebody who's not emotional. Talk about it in love and in the fear of God. Knowing that you are also a weak person who, can, who is capable of doing the exact same thing. So we're going to close our first point with uh, Romans chapter 12. And we're going to read verses 9 through 21. And I'm not even going to necessarily explain these verses or expand on them. I just want them to stand alone and speak for themselves. Verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind or do not be proud, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so, as far as it de- so far as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. Never take your own revenge. Let me say that again. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If you haven't already, you need to highlight those verses. You need to underline those verses. You need to put a box around those verses because it's just practical wisdom for practical holy living. No rumors, no gossip, no backbiting, no smack talking, no bitterness, no he said, she said. Get rid of all that. We should have a sincere love for the brethren and fervently love one another from the heart. Amen. Now, let's look at our second point. The word is not an avocado. I know you guys were looking forward to this one. The word is not an avocado as you read our, our verses once again. So let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to read verses 22 through 25. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. So we're going to be focusing on verse 23. Now, as I've stated in previous weeks, uh, the Spirit of God regenerates us and causes us to be born again. And he uses the word of God to do it. Because faith comes from hearing, and from hearing the word of Christ. So let's all turn to Hebrews chapter 4. And we're going to look at another verse that talks about the word of God. You know, Peter says that in, in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says that the word has brought about our regeneration. This word is imperishable. Meaning that it's not going to go bad. It's not going to expire. The word of God is not an avocado. Anyone, I was going to ask if anybody in here likes avocados, but I feel like that's a ridiculous question. Anybody not like avocados? Weirdos. Come on. How do you not like avocados? All right. Well, I love avocados, and the majority of you do as well. The majority of you have very good taste in food. 
Um, not going to lie, though, I didn't used to like avocados growing up. I hated them. I hate it. I don't know why. They just tasted weird. You're naughty yet, right? But do you like avocados now? Yes. Okay, but growing up, you didn't like them, right? It was just weird. Like, it, did, it felt like it didn't have a flavor. Um, but I don't know what happened. Maybe one day I had, like, some guac, and I'm just like, oh, man, this is fire. This is good stuff right here. But then I was hooked, you know? Then I <laughs> Mariachi's got in the came in here. But, yeah, I guess after one time I had them, and I was like, oh, man, these are amazing. But, man, avocados are expensive. Avocados, I remember we were talking, Ben and I, we were having lunch with some of the older pastors, and um, uh, they were telling us that they used to buy avocados 20 for a dollar. 20 for a dollar. Can you imagine that? Man, I would go broke buying avocados at that price. Like, it was, I don't want to miss out on this deal, you know. But, uh, anyway, avocados... The reason I'm bringing up avocados is avocados take forever to ripen, right? I don't know if you guys have ever have observed this, but avocados, they take forever to get ripe. And then there's like a three-minute window when they're perfect. And if you don't catch it in that three-minute window, then they're done. It's just, it, it, they taste awful. You've lost it. You've lost the avocado. It's like you have to schedule your life around the avocado. That's why they're so expensive, I guess, because they're just very needy. Uh, technically, they're fruits, right? Very needy fruits. Um, but they quickly expire. It's crazy. Just the other day, I was sitting down for, for my evening meal, also known as dinner, and um, my wife handed me an avocado, and it looked, I mean, it didn't look bad. It just, you know, it, it looked okay. You know, it had been there. Where she, like, we were hoping, like, okay, maybe this one's still good. You know, but, you know, I scooped some out, put it in my mouth, and immediately I'm just like, mm, 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 nope, 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 nope. I, it, it, it tasted like poison. Like, I spit it out. Like, it, was, it tasted like poison. It was gross. Well, actually, now that I think about it, my wife was kind of looking at me like, did it work? <laughs> I'm just kidding. My wife doesn't poison me. Um, but it was horrible. It tasted horrible. Uh, it expired. Avocados expire. Avocados are perishable. They don't last. But the word of God is imperishable. It does not expire. And in Hebrews 4.12, if you've opened up to Hebrews chapter 4, in verse 12 it says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, says that the word is imperishable, it won't expire. But he also says that the word is living. In, in verse 23, he says, you have been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring word of God. So he also says that it's living. And then that's what the writer of Hebrews says about the word of God too. He says that it's, it's living. It's, it, and, but he also adds that it's active. It's living and it's active and it's sharp. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. And the writer of Hebrews, um, he says that what this word is able to do is that it's able to cut through all of the nonsense. It's able to cut through all of the nonsense uh, of people and get right to the heart of the matter. Get right to the heart of the matter. It says that the word of God is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And see, and this is why we need to interact with this word daily and as much as we can. The word of God, as we read and interact with it, will speak to us. It will speak to us. It will let us know if what we're doing, how we're living, how we're speaking, how we're interacting with our brothers and sisters, it will let us know if all of these things are according to his will. But the word of God not only does that, it also provides us with an introduction into God's character. It introduces us to God in a deeper way, and it will help us to understand who our Heavenly Father is. And that's one of the great things about this word. For example, let's all turn to Matthew 6. Matthew 6. Matthew 6 is one of my favorite sections of Scripture. It's something that I've been able to hold on to pretty much ever since I got saved. And it's, it's been appropriately titled this section of Matthew 6 as the cure for anxiety. So Matthew chapter 6 
We're going to read verses 25 through 34. For this reason, this is Jesus speaking, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Rhetorical question. And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith, don't worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles, the godless people, eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is an amazing promise. This is an amazing promise from God to us. It's, it's an amazing promise. God will care for us. God will provide for us. He will not leave us hungry, thirsty, or naked. He will provide for us. He always provides. He will always provide. He just tells us, first seek my righteousness in my kingdom. Just do that. And you would never know that this promise exists if you didn't interact with his word. That's why we need to read the word daily so that we can discover these things about God. You know, there's a story of a woman who was a believer, and she had a next-door neighbor who was an atheist, and they had very thin walls. And the atheist neighbor, he hated her. He hated her because he was always hearing her praying. He was always hearing her listening to her worship music and singing songs to Jesus. He was always hearing her just being a Christian. And he hated her because he was an atheist. So one day, he hears the woman praying, and he can hear that she's asking God, to provide food for her. She had fallen on hard times, and so she needed, she didn't have any money for food. So she was just like, God, please provide me with some food. I really need it, I don't have any money. And so this guy, he hears her prayer, and he's like, all right, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go to the grocery store. I'm gonna go buy all of her groceries. I'm gonna put it on her doorstep to show her that her God isn't real. So he goes out, buys her a bunch of food, sets it on her doorstep, knocks on her door, and runs into his apartment so he can just listen to her reaction. She opens the door. She sees the groceries. She begins to praise God. Oh, thank you, Lord Jesus. You provided me with food. You answered my prayers. And so then he decides to go out and confront her. And he's like, ha, you said it was Jesus that provided you with this food, but in actuality, I'm the one who went out to the store and bought you all this food. What do you got to say about that? And so this woman, very godly, she just responds with, well, thank you, Jesus, for using this devil to provide me with food. <laughs> and she continued to praise the Lord. God always provides. He may use unconventional ways. He may use the devil to provide, but God will always provide for his people. So don't worry about it. The word of God, by the spirit of God, has caused us to be born again. And this word of God has so much more to say to us. It has a lot to say to us. Salvation is just the beginning. Our salvation is just the beginning of what God wants to show us. There's so much more. He's infinite. He wants to show us all about himself. So I encourage you guys, read your Bibles. I encourage you guys, when you come to church, bring your Bibles. Open them up. Read them. Take your Bibles with you when you go to work, when you go to school, wherever you go. Take your Bibles with you. If you have a spare five minutes, open it up and read it. Read your Bibles. Get to know this word. Spend time with this word. And this brings us to our final point of the night. The word is louder. The word is louder. So let's go back to 1 Peter 
1 Peter chapter 1. Let's read our verses again, starting in verse 22. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. So, in verses uh, 24 and 25, Peter is quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting from the book of Isaiah. Um, so, let's go to Isaiah. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 39, and we're going to take a look at that portion of Scripture. And as I've said before, if you don't know where Isaiah is, it's all good. You have a table of contents in the beginning of that Bible. Go to the table of contents, what page is Isaiah on, and then go there. No shame. No shame in that. As we get to know this word, you might not know where these books are. As I said last time, I, don't, I still don't know where Habakkuk is. Still don't know. I would have to go to my table of contents. <laughs> these minor prophets, man, they're just, they're hard to find. And then, you know, like you're, you're flipping through the pages, but like it's like a page long. And so you, you skip it. You don't realize you skip it. So use your table of contents. It's okay. It's okay. No one's judging you. So Isaiah 39, but... A few weeks ago, we saw that Peter quoted the Old Testament back in verse 16 of 1 Peter chapter 1, where he quoted the Lord saying, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you remember, that night we, we went to the book of Leviticus to, to see where he, where he uh, quoted these scriptures from. Um, but tonight, I found, it, I found it kind of interesting that I was, as I was preparing for tonight's message, when I was putting together the second point that we just went over, uh, the word is not an avocado, um, the Lord like, led me to Matthew 6. Like, I, I know that I wanted to, to look at a portion of Scripture uh, where there's a promise of God. I don't know which one, but the Lord led me to Matthew 6, where Jesus talks about the lilies of the field. The lilies of the field and how God clothes the grass with these flowers. And he says that if God so clothes the grass, which is here today and thrown in the furnace tomorrow, how much more will he clothe you? And then here we have another reference to grass and flowers. Another reference to grass and flowers, except now it's in the context of God's enduring word. It's almost as if to say, you know, God clothes the fading grass and the flowers, even though it won't last very long. So if God would clothe the grass with such beauty, then he would definitely clothe you. But even though you are more valuable than grass and flowers, you too will eventually fade and die. Which means that your clothing will eventually fade away and die. So what you really need to be concerned about and seeking to fill your life with is with the word of God, which unlike the grass and unlike your flesh, the word of God will endure forever and it will never fade away. And it's also interesting to note that if you do seek to focus on the enduring word of God, then in that seeking and focus, God will provide for you your clothing, and your needs because you are seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness by focusing on the word. It's, a, it's an interesting little cycle. You know, God clothes the field, so he's going to clothe you, but the field's going to die, and so are you. So what you really need to focus on is the word of God, which unlike the field will fade away, but in the focusing on the word, he will provide you with clothing in the same way that he provides the field with flowers. It's pretty cool made sense in my mind. But before we look at Isaiah 39, uh, I just wanted to give a brief overview so that we all know the context of what we're, we're going to read. So older, much wiser Bible teachers uh, will say that the book of Isaiah, uh, it can be broken up into two separate parts. It has the first half and the second half. The first half, chapters 1 through 39, was addressed to Isaiah's contemporaries, the people that he was living with, the people that he was surrounded by as he was writing these things down. The second half of Isaiah, verses 40 through 66, that was addressed to a future generation that would end up in captivity to the Babylonians. In the first half, in chapters 1 through 39, the primary world figure was this guy named Sennacherib. 
He was the king of the Assyrians and the enemy of God's people, Israel. And God showed himself faithful to defeat the Assyrians and protect his people, Israel. So that's chapters 1 through 39. In the second half, chapters 40 through 66, the Israelites are going to be taken into captivity as a punishment for their disobedience and their idolatry. They would get taken out of their homeland and become enslaved to the Babylonians. And so the primary world leader in the second half of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 66, was Cyrus, the king of Persia, who would eventually defeat the Babylonians and allow some of the Israelites to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild their city. So as we approach chapter 39, which we're going to read in a sec, as we approach chapter 39, in chapter 37, God defeats the Assyrians. These are the children of Israel's enemies. God defeats them in chapter 37. In chapter 38, Hezekiah, the king of Judah, he gets sick. He gets very sick, terminally sick. He's going to die. But then he cries out to God. He prays a very humble, heartfelt, weeping prayer, and God decides to heal Hezekiah miraculously and give him 15 more years of life. So that's chapter 38. And then in chapter 39, once Hezekiah was healed and was given more, uh, 15 more years of life, the king of Babylon, at this point, they don't know who these people are, but the king of Babylon sends his son and some people to Hezekiah to, to give him a gift. Like, hey, we heard that you were sick and you almost died, but now you're alive, so here's a gift for you. Just being nice. But then Hezekiah decides that it would be a good idea to show these Babylonian visitors all of his riches and treasures and weapons and everything. And he had a lot of stuff, Hezekiah did. The Lord blessed him. So he's just like, hey, since you're here, let me show you everything that I have, even though I don't know you. So let's begin reading in chapter 39 of Isaiah, verses 1 through 8. It says, At that time, Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. Hezekiah was pleased and showed them all his treasure house, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious oil and his whole armory and all that was found in his treasuries. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where have they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, Isaiah said, What have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasuries that I have not shown them. So in verse 5, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons who will issue from you, whom you will beget, will be taken away, and they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he thought, For there will be peace and, and, and truth in my days. So, Isaiah tells King Hezekiah, because he showed these people everything, everything that he had, that they're going to come and take it all. Like, you, you basically just showed the hunters everything. Like, you showed them everything. You showed the thieves everything that you have. You don't do that. And so because of that, they're going to come. They're going to take everything. They're going to destroy your family. They're going to take everybody into captivity. To which Hezekiah responds with, oh, no, I'm sorry. Please, No. Nah, that's not how Hezekiah responded. What Hezekiah responded it was essentially like, whew, all right, cool. It's not going to happen to me. You know, I mean, sure, my children and my grandchildren, they're going to have to you know, be taken captive and be taken slaves. And you know, they're going to have a horrible time, but hey, man, at least, at least it won't be me. Sucks for them. So, so two things that I thought of in response when I, when I read that. I was like, first of all, what a jerk. I had, I had another word, but what a jerk. 
Like, dude, seriously? Like, you, your entire people are going to be taken into captivity because of something that you did. And you're just like, well, at least I'm not going to have to face the consequences of it. It's messed up. Second thing, this story is told, is told in 2 Chronicles, uh, in 2 Chronicles 32. And in 2 Chronicles 32, we read that when the Babylonian visitors came to Hezekiah, it says that God left Hezekiah to see what he was going to do, to test him. God left Hezekiah to test him, to see what he was going to do when these visitors came to see him. We, we read in earlier verses that Hezekiah was a man that struggled with and frequently gave in to pride. He was a very proud man. So God took a step back to see what he was going to do. So when the Babylonians came in, Hezekiah saw it as an opportunity to be like, oh, well, let me show you my glory. Let me show you all the things that I've acquired. Let me show you all of my stuff. You see all that? Yeah, that's me, baby. I did that. That's all my stuff. He was a very proud man. So God tested Hezekiah, and he failed the test. Hezekiah failed the test, and his descendants were going to be the ones to pay the price. And Hezekiah couldn't care less. He really couldn't care less. As you read, he's just like, well, I mean, at least it's not going to happen in my days. Of course, the people of Israel in general, they weren't blameless. There are no innocent victims. They also were given to idolatry and disobedience to God. So this captivity to the Babylonians wasn't just about Hezekiah. Everybody was in the wrong. So Isaiah lets him know. He lets Hezekiah know that the captivity is coming because of the disobedience. And this ends the first half of Isaiah, as we talked about. The first half of Isaiah ends with this. And then we start with the second half of Isaiah, chapter 40. So now let's read chapter 40, verses 1 through 8. And here's where we'll find the verses that, that Peter quotes in 1 Peter. So Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 8. Comfort, O oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God, the word of our God, stands forever. So what are the first words from the Lord right after he lets them know that they're about to be punished for their disobedience? What are the first words? Well, in verses 1 and 2, he says, comfort my people. He says, comfort my people. Speak kindly to my people and let them know that they are forgiven. Let them know that they're forgiven. Their punishment has already been given out. He speaks to them in future terms. Even though they have yet to face the punishment for their disobedience, even though they're still in the midst of their disobedience that will bring about this punishment, he's telling them while they're in the midst of their disobedience that they are forgiven. He's already telling them, you're forgiven, and he's comforting them. And then in verses 3 through 5, those are the verses that we know they're describing John the Baptist. And even John the Baptist, he quotes these verses when they asked him who he was. And who was John the Baptist? For those of you who don't know, he was the little light that came before the great light, Jesus. He was the one who was preparing everyone to receive Jesus. He was the opening act for the headliner, Jesus. He was the one who, when he saw Jesus walking, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John the Baptist, when asked who he was... 
he said that he was Isaiah 40, verse 3. He says, I am a voice calling out in the wilderness, clear the way for the Lord. And verses 4 and 5 in Isaiah 40, that's it's just the continuation of who John the Baptist was. And then that brings us to verses uh, 6 through 8. And I'll read it again. It says, a voice says, call out. And then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And all of us and our flesh, we will wither and we will fade away, no doubt. But the word of God, the word of God stands forever. In John 1.1, it says that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Speaking of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the word of God. He is the word that became flesh in John chapter 1, and he is the word of God that stands forever here in Isaiah 40 that we just read. So to recap these verses in Isaiah 40, the people of God are in disobedience, and a judgment for their disobedience is coming. In the same way that all of humanity is in disobedience to God, and a judgment is coming. And then, in Isaiah 40, God comforts his people long before they even needed to be comforted. He tells them that they're forgiven long before they're forgiven. He tells them that their punishment has been poured out long before it was poured out, all while they were still in their disobedience. And in the same way, the moment that Adam and Eve fell in the garden, he told of a coming salvation and a coming forgiveness in Genesis 3 long before that salvation and forgiveness came. And then we get a picture of John the Baptist crying out that the Savior of the world is coming and is here. They don't know it's John the Baptist. Isaiah didn't know that he was talking about John the Baptist in the future, but we do. And then verses 6 through 8, they give us the enduring word. It gives us the Savior, the word of God that will never fade away, that will stand forever. And we know that this is Jesus. But again, Isaiah didn't know that. I don't know about you, but this sounds an awful lot like the preaching of the gospel, even in the book of Isaiah, even in the Old Testament. Remember in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, it says that the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come, they made careful inquiries. They were seeking to know what person or time that they were, that they were writing about. Now, this portion of Isaiah, Isaiah 40, is one of those areas where Isaiah was, what am I writing? Like, what am I talking about here? I know I'm writing about something. I just don't know what it is. But of course, it wasn't for him. It wasn't for Isaiah to know. It was for us. As it says in 1 Peter, they were writing these things for us in this time in history. Who's writing it for us, as it says in 1 Peter 1.12. And as I've stated before, the word of God is amazing. The word of God is amazing because it's, you think that the gospel is a New Testament thing, but it's, it's all over the Old Testament. It's all over the Old Testament. It's everywhere. So many times Jesus is hidden in the Old Testament and you don't realize he's hidden in the Old Testament until he's revealed in the New Testament. There's so many Easter eggs of Jesus throughout the Bible, pun intended. Easter eggs, Easter, Jesus, no? Sorry, I won't try that again. <laughs> but this portion, of <laughs> this portion of Isaiah, it's one of those Easter eggs. It's one of those things that are foreshadowing Jesus, foreshadowing the gospel, the gospel. And as we've learned in the past few weeks, the gospel of our salvation, it was in the works since before the foundation of the world, before Adam and Eve sinned, before this portion of scripture in Isaiah 40, before God said, let there be light, this salvation was already ready to go, just waiting for stuff to happen so that it can be completed. But as the band makes their way back up here, if you guys would be so kind, what is God saying to us tonight? Like, what, what's he saying to us tonight? 
Well, from our first point, he's telling us to have a brotherly and active love for each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. So that's the first thing he's telling us tonight. We need to love each other. We need to have Philadelphia love for each other, agape love for each other. We need to be 1 Corinthians 13 with each other. From our second point, he's telling us that we need to place a high value on his word because it will never perish. It will never expire. It will never go out of style. This word is enduring. But what is he saying to us through this Old Testament reference in the book of Isaiah? Well, in speaking to his children, for those of you who have received him, he's saying that you may be in disobedience to him right now. You may have a relationship with him, but you may be in sin right now, whatever the case. If you are his child, you are already forgiven. That's what he's telling you. You're already forgiven. The punishment for your sins has already been poured out. He's already, he already knew what was going to happen, and he still sent his son to die for you. Future mistakes and all. He's not surprised by them. And whatever you may be feeling, whatever you may be thinking, your entire existence is like grass and flowers. It will fade. You are weak. You are weak. Your thoughts are weak. Your opinions are weak. Your emotions are weak because you will wither and fade away. But his word, his word endures forever. And his word says that you are forgiven. You are forgiven. His word says that if you confess your sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of your sin. His word says that where your sin abides, his grace will abound all the more. His grace will always swallow up your sin. His word says that the law of sin and death no longer have any power or ownership over you anymore. If you are in Christ, you are set free from the law and its requirements, its punishments, and its obligations. You are set free. God is saying that you may be as heartless as Hezekiah, but you can be renewed if you will just repent and believe the gospel again. It's a daily thing. It's not a one and done. We have to constantly repent and believe. And in speaking to somebody who may not know Christ, um, maybe you wouldn't consider yourself to be a child of God. He's saying that he wants you to be his child. He wants you to be his child. But your sin has caused a separation between you and him. And it's not that he can't reach you or he can't hear you. It's just that he's too pure to allow sin to exist in his presence. But that's why he crushed sin in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. When he nailed him to the cross, Jesus took upon himself all of your sins. So God showed his love for you in that way. God showed his love for you in that way so that if you would believe in Jesus, you would not perish but have eternal life. So let's pray.